Cha. Hello and welcome. I hope you recognise the Gaelic. Welcome then to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode 10. I'm Marion Jones. And today we are visiting somewhere that both is and isn't quite Edinburgh. Leith, the port, which is only a mile or two from the city centre. You can get there on foot, if you wish, although there are buses and taxis and whatnot too. And when you get there, you will find it has a character, all of its own. Described as follows by the Tourist Board. The district of Leith rests on the shores of the Firth of Forth, at the mouth of the Water of Leith. Having served as the Port of Edinburgh for hundreds of years, the area's original harbour dates back to the 14th century and has been visited by many travelling kings and queens. And if you go today, what will you find? Well, harbour, definitely. The last stretch of the Water of Leith, leading into the harbour and along which you'll find little shops, nice restaurants, some colourful facades, a very pleasant place to wander. And also in Leith then other things, the Ocean Terminal Shopping Centre, an independent art gallery or two, and probably the best known and most visited attraction there, the Royal Yacht Britannia, which after being decommissioned in the 1990s, found its last resting place here, and which you can visit and go all the way round, poking into all sorts of nooks and crannies. So the plan for today's episode then, a little history, an idea of what to see, and especially a section on the Royal Yacht Britannia. But let's leave the last words of introduction to James Boswell, that 18th century writer, friend and companion of Samuel Johnson, a Scot of course, very proud of his home country, and particularly proud, I think, of Edinburgh. Indeed, he wrote, after the prospect from Constantinople, of which I have been told, and that from Naples, which I have seen, I believe that the view of the Frith and its environs from the Castle Hill of Edinburgh is the finest prospect in Europe. Turning to the history then, and the idea that Leith has been a marine gateway for Edinburgh for centuries, and because of the trade that that's engendered and all the wealth it's created, it's been the economic powerhouse of Edinburgh too. But I think that people who are fond of Leith don't like to see it always described in its relationship to Edinburgh, but rather as a place in its own right. And the earliest mention I've found of it dates right back to 1128, something called the Foundation Charter for Holyrood Abbey. You might remember from an earlier episode, King David founded the Abbey, and written into its charter is the fact that he gave the harbour and the land around it to the abbots of Holyrood. Descriptions from the 14th century state that Leith was still a separate borough, but that the tussle over who was going to control all that wealth had certainly begun. And in 1329, Robert the Bruce's charter asserted his authority over both Edinburgh and Leith. This document, which opens, Robert, by the grace of God, King of Scots, to all good men of his land, greeting, goes on to explain that the port of Leith will now be brought under his control. And sure enough, this was done, and there was soon an increase in trade and prosperity for the city of Edinburgh. By the 1500s, it was a busy port, lots of wool leaving Leith for places like Flanders and France and Italy. And all this prosperity, meaning that Edinburgh grew in importance and was, in that century, declared to be the Scottish capital. One of the most terrible periods of Leith's history was in 1560, something called the Siege of Leith, which had its roots in religious turmoil. So Mary of Guise is reigning in Scotland, a French Catholic, of course, Protestant Scots objected, lots of fighting ensued, 
to the point where the Scots, most unusually, possibly a one-off, requested English help, even though the English had for centuries been known as the Old Enemy. What ensued then was, English ships blockaded the harbour, 3,000 French troops were trapped inside, couldn't get in or out, no food was getting in or out either, and terrible suffering ensued for the 3,000 French troops trapped there, and, of course, for the people of Leith too, many of whom starved to death. In June of that year, Mary of Guise died, the fighting died down, and the Treaty of Edinburgh was signed. Leith continued as a busy port through the 16 and 1700s, and we know that by 1781 there was a fleet of 500 ships in Leith. This was described by Robert Heron in a book called Scotland Delineated, published in 1799, in which he wrote, The commerce of the place is very considerable. If you're wondering what all these ships are doing, they were going to and from Greenland for the whale fishing industry. They were going to and from the West Indies, bringing sugar and cotton back to Scotland. And to give some idea of the extent of the trade, here's Robert Heron on that topic. Quote, to Germany, Holland and the Baltic are exported lead, glassware, linen and woollen stuffs and a variety of other goods. From thence are imported immense quantities of timber, oak bark, hides, linen rags, pearl ashes, flax, hemp, tar and many other articles. From France, Spain and Portugal, wines, brandy, oranges and lemons. From the West Indies and America, rice, indigo, rum, sugar and logwood. And then he goes on to describe how many other industries grew up linked to all this trade, shipbuilding for a start, and associated things like rope making and iron forgeries. Glass was made in Leith for windows and for bottles. Another lucrative trade was that of oysters. They would be harvested in the Firth of Forth and they would be taken to London, a trade described by one Hugo Arno in his book The History of Edinburgh. He tells us that in London they would be taken to other rivers and deposited there to, quote, be fattened for the consumption of the great metropolis. He explains how lucrative it was and how greedy this made people, using the phrase, much avidity for gain, which I rather like. He explains about rising prices. Oysters were first sold at four shillings a barrel, but that soon rose to six shillings. And as he puts it, in AD 1778, 8,400 barrels were exported, which, at six shillings per barrel, amounts to £2,520. But he has a warning too, if you keep doing this, he says, there won't be enough oysters left to have any business. But he puts it much more eloquently than that. Quote, Thus it appears, if the oyster banks on the 4th are not dragged more sparingly, this commodity will be speedily exhausted. And human nature being what it is, alongside the increase in trade and wealth came the risk of criminality. As early as the 1600s, the High Constables of Leith was formed, a sort of police force to make sure things were as they should be in the port. And in the 1780s came this wonderful description of their tasks. Quote, to apprehend all vagabonds and sturdy beggars, all banners, curses, swearers and blasphemers of God's name, drunkards, sabbath-breakers or other lewd persons. The High Constables of Leith served until 1848 when an act ended most of their duties, but in fact they do still exist today. They play a ceremonial role, so you'll see them out on parade when, for example, a member of the royal family visits Leith. 
lots more industrialisation through the 1800s, and this further increase in trade meant that the dock facilities had to be expanded. It was also in the 1800s that the idea of Leith as a transport hub started to grow. In 1821, the first steamship service opened from Leith to London. 1832, the first railway arrived in Leith. And also, in the 1830s, SS Sirius was built here, the very first passenger and cargo ship to cross the Atlantic under its own power. So, the history of the transport industry behind it, in 1910, it was aeroplanes they were building. And the very first aeroplane to fly anywhere in Scotland was built right here, in Leith. By the early 1900s, there were constant sailings in and out of the port, to the other Scottish ports, three sailings a week to London, cruises to Holland and Belgium, that being the start then of an industry that exists in Leith today, as well as a commercial dock still, it is also a cruise ship destination. If you are on a cruise ship with a trip to Edinburgh on the itinerary, then Leith will be where you land. So, just before we leave the history, three key dates. 1561. That was the year when Mary Queen of Scots, having grown up at the French court, having married the Dauphin she expected to make her life in France and rule as queen over there, but who ended up returning to Scotland after being widowed, it was here in Leith that she landed. You might remember the description of that from an earlier episode. Likewise, in 1822, when King George IV made his famous trip to Scotland, again it was here on the quayside at Leith that he docked. And if you go and look today, you will find a metal panel emblazoned with a little gold crown to commemorate the occasion. It was a big moment. It was the first visit of a reigning monarch to Scotland for nearly 200 years. And there were crowds waiting at Leith to greet the king and they lined the route all the way into Edinburgh, a route which he travelled in an open carriage as they cheered. And the last date that everybody who knows the history of Leith knows about is 1915, a date when tragedy struck for the entire area. The occasion of what became known as the Gretna Railway Disaster. Hundreds of recruits from Edinburgh and Leith had joined the Royal Scots and volunteered to fight for their country in the First World War. On the 22nd of May 1915, they had set off by train down south and only a few hours after their departure, news began to come through that a terrible train accident had taken the lives of many of them. Headlines from the Edinburgh Evening News on that day read as follows. Disaster to Leith Territorials. Terrible rail smash at Gretna. Hundreds killed and injured. And sure enough, as the news unfolded, the story was disastrous. Four trains, including the troop train, had been involved, and reports in the paper the following day read as follows. A special troop train containing 500 members of the 7th Battalion Royal Scots, which was proceeding to Carlisle, collided with the 6.10am this morning from Carlisle, as it was being shunted to Quintins Hill. Many passengers are reported killed, and about 300 soldiers injured. But, as the news kept filtering through, it got worse and worse. The death toll among the soldiers was over 200. And, when the bodies began to arrive back in Leith, a thousand people lined the route from Leith Central Station, standing in complete silence. Here's a description from the book Edinburgh Curiosities by James U. Thompson of the procession of coffins from Dalmany Street Drill Hall to Rosebank Cemetery the following day. Quote, It is only a 12-minute steady walk from Dalmany Street to Rosebank Cemetery, 
and three thousand a hundred and fifty soldiers, heads bowed and rifles reversed, lined the route. At three p.m. all traffic stopped, and thousands of citizens from both Leith and Edinburgh stood tightly packed and shoulder to shoulder on the pavements. Shops closed, and blinds were drawn as a mark of respect. First to be buried were the remains of forty-eight unidentified soldiers carried in Red Cross motor vehicles, four coffins in each ambulance. In the funeral procession were the pipes and muffled drums of the 16th Royal Scots and the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. Soldiers from the 16th Royal Scots formed the bearer party, but the public were excluded from the cemetery. James U. Thompson explains that you can still see the graves and the memorial in the Rosebank Cemetery today, set up to remember what still ranks as Britain's worst railway disaster, in which 227 people were killed, 214 of them Royal Scots. A message arrived from the King, George V, which read as follows. Please express to the Royal Scots heartfelt sympathy of the King and Queen with all ranks in the loss of gallant comrades through this terrible railway accident, and assure the bereaved families how much their Majesties feel for them in their overwhelming sorrow. And just one last little piece of history, namely the fact that the football team Hibs, or Hibernians, are also associated with Leith. They started out as an Edinburgh team. You may recall from a previous episode the story of how a priest at St Patrick's Church in the Cowgate had formed a football team which turned out to do rather well and grow and grow and become the Hibs that we still have today. Well, in 1880, they moved from Cowgate to Easter Road Ground in Leith, where they still play. And they were, apparently, the first British side to take part in the European Cup. So, that paints the background. What is there to see if you go on a visit today? I think you'll certainly want to walk around the harbour and along the shoreline just leading back from that, which is lined with shops and cafes and lots of independent businesses. There are a couple of navy-type things to look out for in that area, one being the Customs House. The building that you see today was built in 1812, but the history of a Customs House in Leith goes a lot further back than that. Right back to the Middle Ages, in fact, because somebody had to regulate customs duties and work out exactly what was coming in and out of the port of Leith. Made lots of money, of course, too. What they called petty customs went to the city of Edinburgh and to Holyrood Abbey, so already Leith not profiting from the money it was making. And the other sort of customs, great customs, were paid straight to the king and the church. And so the king, you can be sure, made sure that he appointed some customers who were customs officers, really, and made sure that he got everything to which he felt himself entitled. The customs house today is a rather grand building, designed in the early 1800s by an architect who was also involved in the design of Edinburgh's elegant new town. And over its entrance you will see today an impressive coat of arms, that of the king of the day, George III. And also, just set back from the harbour, the Merchant Navy Memorial, which tells you quite a lot about Leith. It was set up to commemorate the work of the Scottish Merchant Navy in the two world wars, as well as in other conflicts, to be, as the information board next to it says, a timeless tribute to those Merchant Navy seafarers and fishermen from Scotland who died, and the many who have no known grave. And it makes reference to, to another aspect of Leith's history, the fact that there is a Leith Nautical College, which has its very own training ship, T.S. Dolphin, where all sorts of different Navy personnel trained. 
many deck engineer and radio officers, cadets, ratings, engine room and victualling personnel, I think they're the caterers, received, says the information panel, their formal Navy education and seamanship instruction here in Leith. But I think for most people, if they want to go visiting something in Leith, they're probably going to choose the Royal Yacht Britannia, which, out of service since the 1990s, is here in Leith and which you can visit. I think I read that there are 300,000 people a year who visit this ship, and in tourism terms, it's very much acclaimed, because you are allowed to go to most corners of the ship, and you really do end up with an impression of what it must have been like when it was in service. It's a very Scottish ship, actually, built on the Clyde in Glasgow in 1953, the year of the Queen's coronation, and serving then for 44 years until it was finally decommissioned in 1997 and brought here to Leith to be a museum ship. And when you look round it, you do feel the weight of history behind you. This was in fact the 83rd and possibly last royal yacht. I say possibly because I've noticed in the newspapers of late people suggesting that maybe for Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, the thing to do would be to bring a new royal yacht into service. Who knows whether they will. Anyway, this tradition dates back to 1660, and this last one, the Royal Yacht Britannia, travelled over a million nautical miles, and was really quite an operation. 250 crew, all sorts of jobs on board, seamen, navigators, engineers, radio operators, people, of course, to look after the royal family and their guests, so medics, caterers, etc., and, very royal this, 26 members of the Royal Marines Band. So they and their instruments ever ready to pipe up when required. Britannia, in fact, was used for a number of different purposes. Royal family holidays, for certain. Royal honeymoons. You may have seen pictures of Prince Charles and Princess Diana, for example, on deck in the early days of their honeymoon. But it played an ambassadorial role too, visiting all sorts of Commonwealth countries, inviting heads of government and all sorts of other important people on board as guests of the Queen. It played a commercial role too. There were sea days, which were organised by the Overseas Trade Board, when Britannia would travel overseas and host businessmen from other countries on board. There was a more serious side to it too. It had in fact been designed so that it could convert to a hospital ship within 24 hours, if ever necessary. I don't think it was ever necessary, but Britannia did take part in a rescue operation in 1986. There was a civil war in Yemen. There were British nationals who needed to be evacuated. Britannia was in the area, and so she was sent to help. In the end, over a thousand refugees were rescued. People of more than 50 different nationalities, all ferried in small boats from the shore out to Britannia and then taken away to safety. But definitely the routine of Britannia, generally from year to year, didn't vary very much. She would make an appearance at Cow's Week, the sailing week held every year on the Isle of Wight, and then she would set off on the Queen's annual cruise of the Western Isles of Scotland. It was a good way to get to Scotland, where she was going to be in residence at Balmoral for a few weeks, but it was also a period which the Queen very much looked on as a holiday. There would be the chance to stop on deserted beaches and have barbecues or take walks. And they always made a point, apparently, of stopping at the Castle of May, the Queen Mother's residence, so that the Queen could visit her mother. And then for the rest of the year, the ship would see service in the various commercial or ambassadorial roles 
that I've just described. So when you go to look round, you are seeing the royal family's home at sea, but you're also seeing a place where glittering state banquets were held, somewhere where royalty from other countries could be invited, and where world leaders and the famous and the hugely important generally could be entertained. I saw a reference somewhere to the fact that this might include everyone from, quote, President Nelson Mandela to Frank Sinatra. You do, on a visit, get the chance to wander around yourself following a prescribed route, but one which takes you really practically everywhere. So you see the royal apartments with their family photos and possessions that remind you of the Queen's express wish that Britannia should be at times the home of my husband and myself and of our family. I will spare you a never-ending list of all the things that you can see on your way round, but just a few interesting snippets. The state drawing room, for example, very much has a look of an English country house with its bookcases and its chintz sofas. There were even little tables with afternoon tea set up. So there's multi-layered plates with dainty sandwiches and cakes. A grand piano in the corner played apparently by, among others, Diana, Princess of Wales. And also what the guidebook describes as card tables for bridge, whist or poker. Would you not love to know who usually won the poker? Then there's the state dining room with room for 56 guests and where apparently it would take three hours to set the table for an important meal. The guidebook again. The position of each item of cutlery in China was measured with a ruler to ensure perfection. And if that's not quite madly British enough for you, how about this? On the top table would sit a pair of gold sculptured camels which had been a gift to the Queen from the ruler of Dubai on her visit to the Gulf States in 1979. That was apparently the single most valuable item on board, but I can promise you that in the cabinets around that room there are all sorts of gifts from the rulers of countries all over the world. And we were told too that, space being rather tight on ships, this most elaborate of dining rooms also doubled as a cinema and as a room in which to hold church services on Sunday mornings. You can walk too past the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh's sitting rooms, rather strangely named because they both had desks in them, so you can imagine the Queen sitting there opening her red boxes, which apparently she absolutely did, even though she was technically on holiday. You can walk past the bedrooms too, and there too it was the little details that captured my imagination. This one, for example. Her Majesty's bed linen was from the Victorian Albert III, that being a previous royal yacht. We're always being told that the Queen is very opposed to waste in all its forms. So there she is, reusing Victorian bed linen. And also on the subject of bed linen, this from the guidebook about Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh's preferences. The Duke's sheets were slightly smaller than the Queen's, who preferred a larger turnback, and on his explicit instructions were supplied with pillows that did not have lace borders. There's a lovely little sun lounge too with apparently a cleverly concealed refrigerated drinks cabinet, and also a veranda deck, used at times for the collapsible canvas swimming pool set up for the royal children, but when needed also pressed into service as a ceremonial space for state receptions. Let's hope the two never overlapped. You're also taken past the Admiral's suite and the officers' cabins and also the Royal Marines Barracks, a quite small space into which apparently 26 musicians and their instruments could all be stowed. You go round the galleys, so the kitchens in non-nautical speech, in which when the royal family were on board, Buckingham Palace staff would always cook. 
Favourite details of mine here were the fact that there are ovens big enough to roast a 100 chickens at a time and an enormous steamer which could cook 200 puddings in one batch. One has to wonder what some of the foreign guests make of the English steamed pudding. Perhaps best of the lot from this area, the jelly room, described in the guidebook as a special cold room where the royal children's jellies were stored. You go past all the more working elements too, the laundry, the engine rooms and, wait for it, a garage where the Rolls-Royce is stored. The Queen and Prince Philip weren't going to hire any old Rolls-Royce when they got what they were going. No, no, they were going to take theirs with them. And there's also a royal barge. So for those occasions when they arrived somewhere where the harbour was very small, or perhaps they were making their entrance up a river, the royal barge would be taken out of its storage and used to take them those last few miles. So really, quite a ship. And absolutely a piece of history. Just to illustrate that, a couple of quotes. This one from 1953, when Queen Elizabeth herself named the ship. Quote, I name this ship Britannia. I wish success to her and all who sail in her. That was the first time on which the name of this ship was revealed to the public and it was launched with, what else, a bottle of Empire wine. And then, 44 years later, came the end. So this ship, which had been both a private sanctuary for the royal family and, quoting from the guidebook, a living, working symbol of royal Britain, was to be no more. Its last official duty was to take part in the handover of Hong Kong back to China in 1997. She sailed to Hong Kong, ceremonies were held on board, and she sailed back then with the last governor of Hong Kong, Sir Chris Patton. And then on the 11th of December, 1997, the Queen was piped ashore from the Royal Yacht Britannia for the very last time, at, quote, precisely one minute past three in the afternoon. So run with military precision right to the end. The Queen made a speech of thanks and tributes in which she said, This great ship Britannia has played an important role in the history of the second half of this century. Steaming over one million miles, she has proudly carried out over 700 royal visits at home and overseas, as well as numerous highly successful commercial programmes. The Queen, as you may know, is famously pretty unemotional most of the time, but it is said that here she did shed a tear. Traditionally, a decommissioned Navy ship would be scuttled, which I think means broken up. But for once, tradition was not adhered to. It was decided that a resting place would be found for Britannia in Leith and that it would become a museum ship, so one that the public could visit to learn all about her illustrious history. It's said, in fact, that the Queen and particularly Prince Philip disapproved of this idea. I'm pretty sure he would have wanted to stick to Navy traditions and have it scuttled. But the fact that it's such a popular attraction does indicate that the public, at least, thought it was a jolly good idea. So that's more or less it for today. I hope I've left you with the notion that Leith is worth a visit for sure, that it both is and isn't Edinburgh. I think if you're wanting to go, you certainly could spend a whole day there if you want to do some wandering and some eating and shopping and then allow half a day to visit Britannia. An easy bus ride away from the city centre or a taxi ride, of course, but you can also walk. Here's some advice from the Visit Scotland website. Although Leith can easily be reached by bus, one of the best ways to visit is the mile-long Leith Walk, a charming footpath which links the east end of Princess Street 
to the shore in Leith. There's an idea, if the weather's kind. Next week we are going back to Edinburgh City Centre, to the Writers' Museum, for an episode with a little about that, and quite a lot more about the three big Edinburgh writers who feature there, namely Sir Walter Scott, Robert Louis Stevenson and Robbie Burns. I hope you'll be able to join me for that, but meanwhile I'm going to dust off my Gaelic again and attempt to say thank you and goodbye in the Scots language. So here goes. Tapa leave, agus marshin leave. <laughs>